Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We looked at this passage last week from the perspective largely of the events, what happened. This week we're going to look at it more from the perspective of what was said. And especially how, through what they say, the apostles reveal their baseline commitments and how those are contrasted over against the Sanhedrin revealing their baseline commitments. So the apostles' commitments, the Sanhedrin's commitments. So we'll read the same story we read last week, but we'll look at it from a slightly different perspective. So Acts 5, starting at verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in prison publicly. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Then one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things, so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time, some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God... You cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see which way of life is superior. Give us the grace to commit to that way of life, the way of life that obeys you rather than men. We pray these things in the name of your Son, 
whose death and resurrection have brought repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Amen. Well, Luke shows us the Apostles' Gospel commitments. And over against that, he shows us the Sanhedrin's rotten attitude. So we have, I've listed them here on the back of your bulletin. The Apostles' basic commitments, obedience to God. Gospel basics like incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and then witnessing. The Apostles' commitments. What are the Sanhedrin's commitments? Oh, that's right. Jealousy. Victimhood. Homicidal rage. And, of course, with that, oh, we don't want to fight God. Which way of life is superior? Luke is inviting us, of course, not only to see who's worthy to teach the people of God, but also, honestly, which way would you rather live? The commitments of the Sanhedrin or the commitments of the apostles make for a better life? So the apostles, we'll give them the first word, and of course we'll start with the overwhelming, the biggest point that Peter makes. There's one liner in verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now this is a revolutionary statement. As we know, and of course the same is true all around us today, you will generally be told that you obey God by obeying whoever it is, some human in line of authority above you. There are certain people who are officers of your workplace, the state, the church, who are going to tell you, if you want to be obedient to God, you need to obey me. And of course, the high priest happened to be one of those people. I'm God's representative. I work right here for the church, in the church, as the church. If you want to obey God, you'll obey me and stop talking about this Jesus fellow. Peter says, Peter introduces this concept that sometimes in order to obey God, I need to disobey this properly constituted human authority. That guy was really the high priest. He was a genuine officer in the church of God. He wasn't an imposter. He wasn't a phony. He really belonged there according to the rules by which one got that position. And yet Peter tells him, to obey you is to disobey God. To disobey you is to obey God. What's the idea? Well, it's simply that human laws can and do come into conflict with divine law. At certain times, in certain instances. Most of the time, yes, you're going to obey God by obeying your parents. By obeying your local civil officials by obeying your elders in the church. That, generally speaking, is the mainstream way of human life. But, there are times when the law, or regulations, or your boss, or your parents, or your elders, tell you to lie, tell you to steal, tell you to dishonor your parents, tell you to commit adultery, tell you to assist the state in stealing lying, or killing. And at those times, 
Peter is not saying that they're going to be real frequent. He's not advancing this as the primary paradigm by which you should evaluate everything. Right? He's not saying hermeneutic of suspicion. Probably if your parents, elders, or state officials are telling you to do it, it's a sin. That's not the idea. The idea is that at times, you could be led wrong, bossed wrong, told wrong by somebody in a legitimate position of legitimate authority. And when that day comes, you need to obey God rather than men. Now, how do you do that? Number one, you have to know what it is to obey God. Thus, you need to know the Ten Commandments and you need to know what they mean. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image and honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. These commandments need to be in your head word for word. And you also need to learn to think in moral terms. That is, this is right, this is wrong. This is unlawful, that is lawful. If you haven't noticed, of course, moral terms have been systematically replaced in our society over the last three centuries or so with psychological terms. Thus, Right. Draw your boundaries. Care for yourself. Don't let toxic people into your life. God doesn't speak to us in those psychological terms. Now, can you translate moral terms into psychological terms and vice versa? Well, yes, there's, some, there's quite a bit of overlap there. Psychological terms are not necessarily wrong. But if the goal is to obey God rather than men, in order to do that successfully, you have to have trained your mind and your habits of thought and action in the moral categories that God's Word presents to you rather than the psychological categories that the world has presented to you. There's nothing wrong with drawing boundaries and avoiding toxic people, per se. But there is something wrong with thinking that that's what all morality consists in. We must protect ourselves from toxic people like the Sanhedrin. Right? That's not what Peter told them. We must obey God rather than men. And so that means your ultimate commitment has to be to obeying God. If your ultimate commitment is to avoid confrontation, to not get beaten with rods, to maintain the relationship, or whatever the case might be, then you've already decided not to obey God rather than men. I don't want to get into it with this person. right? My main goal is to just not go there. Well, if that's your ultimate commitment, then if you have to disobey God to not go there, you'll disobey God because you haven't decided that your major commitment is to obey God rather than men. You've decided that your major commitment is 
to avoid that confrontation. Peter and John and the rest of the apostles have had several opportunities at this point to avoid confrontation. They've been told, right, the council addresses them in those terms. If you don't want to get sideways with us, stop speaking in this name. We're going to assume that your goal is to not get arrested. And we're going to address you in those terms. And Peter has tried to tell them repeatedly, my goal is not to avoid arrest. You can explain to me in many different ways how to avoid arrest. It really doesn't matter. You might as well save your breath because that's not what I'm trying to do here. My goal is something totally different. I have to obey God rather than you. So to obey God rather than men means, number one, knowing what God wants in moral terms through the Ten Commandments and then choosing to do that. Easier said than done. Persons can't fight institutions. Right? You have as much chance of beating our own EPA or Justice Department as Peter had of getting a temple demolition permit from the city of Jerusalem building office. It was not going to happen. So that said, we know that the Bible says obey God rather than men. We also understand that the forces of men are extremely powerful. Money, power, influence, reputation, military force, police dogs. Solzhenitsyn said he had never seen police dogs banned in an arms control treaty, but they're worse than anything else in those treaties. We have ways of making you talk. The state has ways of making you comply. And if you say, oh, I'm determined to obey God, the state says, okay, your assets are frozen. Okay, you're locked up. Now your family's locked up. Now you're being tortured. You still want to obey God rather than men? Peter immediately moves on from his statement to explain why he's willing to stand against everything the state can throw at him. And it's because obedience to God, walking with Christ, offers things that the state can never offer. He gives them the brief gospel message, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. So God raised up Jesus. The first thing he mentions, that's not the resurrection, that's the incarnation. He made Jesus stand on earth. Peter knows the order in which it happens. So he mentions incarnation, death, and then exaltation. God made Jesus live. He brought him into heaven. You killed him in between those things. And what does Jesus offer? Something the state does not offer. To give Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. The state doesn't have forgiveness of sins. Now it has removal of penalties, right? Presidential pardon, executive pardon, you can 
have that taken away. Prison sentence commuted. But God offers something more. Your sins will not be held against you ever in this life or the life to come. You can turn away from sin. The state offers a penitentiary, but it can't change the heart and give repentance like God can and does. Though the state can kill, God can give life, even to those who have been killed. Which is why Peter says, I will obey God rather than you, even though you can take my life. He had heard Jesus say, don't fear those who can merely kill the body. Fear the one who after killing the body can cast body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, what gives you confidence to say, I'm going to obey God rather than man? You understand that your true home is in the next life in a place where the power of the state, the power of human authority and institutions can't reach. However many new pages are added to the Federal Register next year, however many regulations are passed by bureaucrats, in Washington, D.C. offices, we understand that those don't apply in heaven. And that's why we have the guts, or should have the guts, to say, anytime the state says to us, tell a lie, dishonor your father and mother, break God's Sabbath day, don't worship God. Don't talk about Jesus. Steal that money. We say, unfortunately, I really don't care what you can do to me because I care about God more. And I recognize that my true home is in heaven and that your word doesn't go there. So Peter is willing to confront them and say, sorry, not going to obey you. Going to obey God because God offers repentance, forgiveness through the work of Jesus who lived, who died, who rose again, and who's in heaven right now. And then he adds this. We're his witnesses. We're 12 human witnesses that God has done this. And there's the 13th witness who is a person of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit is also witness to these things. What is he suggesting? Not too subtly. Well, if you had the Holy Spirit, Sanhedrin, you would agree with us. In other words, not only am I not going to obey you, I'm also going to inform you that you don't have the Holy Spirit. Right? Peter's goal is not to maintain peace with these people. That's not what he's driving at. He's attempting to reach them to break through their walls and let them know that Jesus lives and reigns, and that they need to submit to Him. So there's the question for us. Do we stand for these things? Do we believe in obeying God? Do we believe in the gospel basics? Do we believe in the power of witness, that is, first-hand knowledge that Jesus is alive? Those were the apostles' core values. Those need to be our core values too. Because, 
Look what they were up against. Well, the Sanhedrin's basic commitments. Verse 17, the high priest and all those who were with him, that's the Sadducees, they rose up and they were filled with jealousy. What is this jealousy or envy? Well, it's sorrow at another's good. I am very sad that the apostles have attracted a crowd of followers and I haven't. They have something good that I don't have and I hate them for it. This is a major sin. This same sin of envy led them to deliver up Jesus to be crucified. I've given you this illustration many times, but it's so good. You come back from test time to your dorm room and you say to your roommate, I'm sure I got a 98 on that test. And your roommate doesn't even look up and says, I hate you. That's envy. You had something good. I hate you for having it. And that's the core value of the high priest and his crew. That church is converting people and we're not. Therefore, we hate them. That friend is making more money than I am, even though I have more credentials. Therefore, I hate him. My child child is better than I am at hitting the baseball, at doing math problems, at you name it, fixing the car, writing a paper, And I'm upset. This envy is a potent force in our world. If you haven't met somebody who hates you for your success or for the blessings you have, you may either be really blessed in your friends or you just don't know what the people around you are thinking. There's many bosses that are envious of their employees. Parents envious of their children. And, of course, religious leaders envious of their congregants. So it is here. This is a core value of the Sanhedrin. Envy. Hating people who are doing well. Hating people who are blessed. Hating people who have something better than what you've got. And that envy then manifests itself in persecution. And, oddly, the victim card. Nothing better than elites playing the victim card. People who run the institutions, who collect the tax revenues, who boss the armed forces, standing up and saying, you're making me look bad. But that's what the high priest says. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. That's the real issue. You're calling me a murderer. Frankly, I'm tired of it. I'm not a murderer, and I hate being called a murderer, and this is so unfair. The victim card. The high priest wanted everybody to know how badly he was being treated. Parents, how often do we play this victim card? I can't believe you kids are being so rowdy. Why do you guys not listen to me? I just slave for you all. We do it. I do it. 
If you hear howls of slander, he's saying bad things about me. Don't automatically believe them. If you hear, I'm being persecuted, I'm being oppressed, help, help, bad people are oppressing me. Don't automatically believe that. The high priest, the senior Jewish official, stands up and that's all he has to say for himself. You 12 no-namers are making me a victim. The Jewish establishment, of course, really did crucify Jesus. Peter has been going all around Jerusalem preaching that. Not slander if it's true. But even if you are being slandered, even if you are a legitimate victim, which the apostles are, right? They're being slandered. They're genuine victims. They spent the night in jail for doing nothing wrong. Does Peter respond, we talked about this last week, with a victim card of his own? Well, I can't believe you threw me in jail. I can't believe that in my own city, among my own people, I'm getting this kind of treatment. He doesn't go there. The apostles throughout the book of Acts refuse to play the victim card. We see them mistreated on a regular basis. What we don't see is them standing up and whining to everybody about how bad they have it and how the world needs to give them a pass because they're victims. The establishment in that era loved to play the victim. The establishment today loves to play the victim. Victims love to play the victim. Everybody loves to play the victim. I'm just hurt and the world is just unfair and I'm going to whine so loud that you all know it. I regret to say that we heard a fair bit of it this past week at General Assembly. Speech after speech from pastors and elders about how they had suffered, they had been wronged, the church hadn't lived up to what it was supposed to be for them. Not the apostolic way. That's a core commitment of the Sanhedrin. And it's a good feeling. I'm a victim of the culture wars. I'm a victim of the liberals. I'm a victim of Washington, D.C. or of this cult or of the sins of broad evangelicalism, Big Eva, as some of our friends call our sector of the church. I'm a victim of fellow Christians within my church who aren't living up to my standards. I'm a victim of my pastor, my session, my friends, my kids, my grandkids, my grandparents. You name it. Somebody out there is crying about it. Peter won't go down that road. When he's presented with the victim card, he responds with the gospel not with a victim card of his own. Don't go there. Don't play the victim card. It may be sitting there on the top of the deck, smiling up at you. Don't do it. 
Jesus didn't play that card. The apostles don't play that card. It's not relevant to obeying God rather than men. In other words, as we'll see in chapter 7, real martyrs don't have a martyr complex. You don't become a genuine martyr by playing martyr. A real martyr never walks around saying, poor me. So Peter responds to the victim card with the gospel. The gospel, predictably, doesn't soothe the high priest's feelings. Instead, it produces homicidal rage. Verse 33, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. The 70 holiest, most spiritually sanctified guys in Israel are sitting there in a semicircle and they hear the proclamation of the gospel and the first thing they start talking about when they hear it is, how can we execute the guys who just preached this to us? Not just, how can we get them sent to the salt mines? How can we make them Roman galley slaves? Maybe we could get them drafted into the Roman army and sent to Britain. No, it was, how can we kill them? Now, hopefully you don't fantasize about killing people. But you may have thought, boy, wouldn't it be nice if so-and-so just had a brain aneurysm? Wouldn't that be handy? That's a value of the Sanhedrin. That's something they practice. I wish these people would just die and get out of my way. It's part of the victim complex. Bad people are making my life bad. If these bad people were dead, then my life would be better. Not proper for followers of Jesus Christ. You'll never see the apostles getting together talking about how they can kill somebody. It doesn't happen. Something that the Sanhedrin does. It's not the way of Christ to kill our enemies or to wish that they were dead. It's the way of Christ to tell our enemies that they can be friends, that they can come and join us. And that, of course, is why most of Acts is taken up with the story of the biggest persecutor of the church who becomes the biggest apostle of the church. We don't ever look at anybody and say, He's too far gone. He's too evil. He hates the church too much. He can definitely go on the enemies list and we can wish he were dead. We can't do it with Kim Jong-un. We can't do it with Xi Jinping, Narendra Modi. Yes, these men have openly declared that they're against Christ. But Jesus can save them and make them champions of the gospel. So finally, after we've seen their jealousy, their victimhood, their homicidal rage on full display, the Sanhedrin all cluster around Gamaliel's speech and announce, oh yeah, 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 we don't believe in fighting God. Oh, that, that would be a bad idea to fight God. They give lip service to it. They appear to not even register that their basic values are utterly opposed to what God wants. That to live for envy, to live for the victim card, to live for homicidal rage is the definition of ungodliness, is the definition of standing up against and fighting against what God is trying to do. Not appropriate for kingdom citizens. As soon as you think, I've earned the right to this bad attitude, those kids 
Those coworkers, they've done it this time. They're going to see me in a bad mood. And they're going to deserve it. Right? As soon as you go there, whatever you can say about, I don't want to fight God, I don't want to oppose Jesus, you've given all that up. You are fighting God with your bad attitude. You've crossed from the apostles and you've gone and sat down with the Sanhedrin and said, I'm a victim. I want to kill my enemies. I hate it when people are more successful than I am. So how do we live in a way that helps us be like the apostles? Well, don't resort to violence, right? The Sanhedrin beat them. They beat the apostles, tell them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Their violence is totally impotent. It doesn't do anything to further their alleged goal. The apostles counter it with their potent joy. They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. What's more attractive when you see somebody, and even from a distance, you can just tell they're fuming. You see the steam, you see the scowl, you see the little movements like they're trying to wring somebody's neck. The first thought in your mind is, wow, I want to go talk to that person. I want to be best friends. Or when you see somebody who's humming a happy tune, has a smile on their face, bouncing their step, which one is more attractive? Which way of life is superior? The guy whose back is all covered with welts, clearly just been beat to a pulp, bouncing out and singing, my oh my, what a wonderful day. Or the guy in his ceremonial robes, wearing jewelry that costs more than your house, sitting there, so angry, ready to bite nails. Which way of life is superior? Which way of life looks like how Jesus lived? Our commitment to incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, repentance, forgiveness, that's what gives us the strength to live like the apostles, to obey God rather than men when that difficulty comes. It will come. Most of the time you obey God by obeying men, and that's hard enough. To obey God rather than men, ten times harder. But also ten times more rewarding when you say, my Jesus is worth it. My Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. And I value being honored by Him so much that I don't care what the establishment thinks of me. They were delighted to be shamed for Jesus. That's why they didn't mind confessing their sin. That's why they didn't mind talking about the Gospel. They thought it was an honor to be shamed for Jesus. Is that us? Are we willing to be thought weird, fanatical, stupid, and strange because we think it's an honor to be shamed for Jesus? So they kept on teaching and evangelizing. Jesus 
as Messiah. They knew the good news, they believed the good news, they talked about the good news. They were joyful enough to obey God rather than men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ, the second or the third fruit, yeah, the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. Lord, pour your Spirit on us that we might have that joy. Not the joy of getting new stuff, a raise, a nicer house, a haircut. Father, help us to have the joy of the Lord. The joy of having the Spirit in our heart, giving us a joy beyond anything that nature can produce. Lord, teach us to abhor the victim card. To abhor envy and every sin. Because we delight in your presence. Because we love being the tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. For whom everything we do prospers. Father, help us to see the Apostles' way of life and to want it and to have it because we have the same Christ that they had. We pray in His name. Amen.